Each week on Emergency, you will hear discussions from EMTs, paramedics, physicians, respiratory therapists, nurses, and other healthcare professionals who are experienced providers in emergency medical care. These guests discuss their personal experiences in the world of emergency, as well as what it takes to provide care in some of the most stressful environments possible. There will also be honest conversations with people who have received emergency medical care, and they will bravely share their experiences as a patient who may have needed an emergency intervention. Expect funny, educational, and insightful conversations, which will illuminate the humanistic side of an often misrepresented profession. The Emergency Podcast is hosted by me, Samantha Barella, owner of Emerge Education Solutions, and I'm also a currently licensed paramedic. I want to give you a heads up that um, our episode today may contain some profanity language as well as some uh, gross descriptions about human anatomy and injuries and illnesses. So listener discretion is advised. Let's jump into our episode. I want to have your attention for a quick second um, because I want to talk about something serious. We have a brotherhood in EMS and fire. That brotherhood is when one of us falls down, we all rally and pick each other up. Well, one of our own has fallen down. Marco Schomburg is a firefighter with the City of Santa Fe Fire Department who was on a wildland fire last fall. He was short of breath and started coughing up blood and was diagnosed with valley fever. That valley fever has paralyzed his diaphragm and now he needs a life-saving procedure in order for his diaphragm to work so he can breathe. This procedure is going to cost him $260,000, which his insurance nor workman's comp is currently covering. Marcos had to come up with $15,000 of his own in order for him to even get the surgery. Well, he's had the procedure and is on the mend. However, he is still coughing up blood and was recently admitted to the ICU. We really need to help Marcos out. And I'm not a person that often will ask for money from people, but I think this is a super important cause, especially for somebody going through COVID and the economic downturn that we've experienced socially. Marcos needs our help. Let's rally together and really help him out. If you're unable to donate, please feel free to share some positive words of encouragement and please share these posts as well as this episode so more people can find out and help Marcos. Today's guest is somebody who you all have been asking to hear more from. And here he is, Dr. Rosen, Dr. David Rosen. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I really hope that you can be somebody who is with us uh, very frequently because I feel like you have so much knowledge and so much um, to bring to the table. And you're really big on research. You're really big on like what's the up and coming in the world of emergency medicine. So I love that. And I think people are really um, excited to hear like what's next. And that's what our episode is about today is what's next with ketamine. Um, so this is part two of ketamine. If any of you did not hear part one, it's episode number two. Dr. Rosen shares with us um, the history of ketamine, how it kind of got a bad rap, and um, how it's being used in the pre-hospital environment right now. And we touched a little bit on how it's being used in the ER. Um, so let's do a quick rundown for those who haven't. Dr. Rosen, let's uh, briefly just talk about um, a little bit of those things, the history and how we're using it in the ER and pre-hospital now. So uh, just briefly uh, giving you a, 
uh, 50-year overview in three minutes or less. Right. Ready, go. Uh, so ketamine was uh, developed as an anesthetic in the early 60s, and it's actually uh, an analog to PCP. And, uh, but PCP made people a little too crazy. And so they modified the molecule and wound up with ketamine. Mm. So it's been used as an anesthetic for the last 50 years. It was deployed in Vietnam, mm -hmm. where it was used as a buddy drug. So if your buddy got wounded, you'd reach across and inject some ketamine into his arm. And uh, the very potent pain reliever and creates this kind of magical world of dissociation, uh, enough to get you from a, a battlefield to a, a medic hospital. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then it found its way into the emergency medicine world over the past really 30 years. And it's the mainstay of uh, procedural sedation in the emergency setting from three months of age to 102 years old. And so we use it every day in the in the clinical setting to put bones back in place mm -hmm. and to do painful procedures on people. Mm -hmm. In the last few years, uh, we're using it more and more in the MS world uh, for rapid trank. So if you have a highly agitated patient, you give them a nice whopping dose of IM ketamine, and it takes that combative, ginormous, alcoholic or schizophrenic and gives them effectively a chill pill. Uh, much more effective than than benzodiazepines, for instance. Right. I was thinking better than Versed. <laughs> better than Versed, yeah. Some people are arguing that we should put ketamine in the water, but I think that's a little excessive for that. <laughs> Tell me where that fountain is, and I'll go fill up my water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get a mister in the emergency department, so as you walk in, you get a quick mister. <laughs> I've thought of that, too, but with um, Ativan. <laughs> <laughs> like and I and I've uh, compared it to like the misters at the grocery store for the vegetables. Like every now and then, it just briefly mists for a couple of seconds. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Ode ketamine by Estee Lauder. <laughs> That's awesome. You should invent it and then be really rich, really, really rich. We just. I'll be your. We partner. just did. <laughs> I'll be your partner. We'll go in together, <laughs> and then I can be rich too. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And so in, in a nutshell, that's, uh, you know, ketamine has been used as an anesthetic. It's been used in the battlefield, and we use it in our battlefield, which is the emergency department. It's also found its way into the pre-hospital setting, sure. and, uh, and it's becoming pretty much ubiquitous uh, in emergency medicine and pre-hospital medicine as well. Um, real quick, before we uh, move into ketamine infusions, um, I want to just ask you, um, some of the feedback that I've gotten from episode one is um, people have said, wow, I didn't realize like how safe ketamine really is. And just from listening to that episode, they feel a lot more comfortable with ketamine. Um, and we talked in that episode a little bit about EMS and how sometimes giving ketamine can kind of um, negatively impact the patient when they get to the ED. Do you have a couple of like quick stories that you could share with us on when EMS brought in a patient with ketamine, a positive, like that was the right thing to do because it really benefited the patient. And then a story that EMS has brought in a patient that they've given ketamine to and where it's really hindered your ability to perform your job in the hospital setting? 
Sure. Um, you know, in the when medics show up in a helicopter and you have an agitated patient, I think it's the ideal drug for an agitated delirium. Okay. So you don't want to take a large combative person and put him in a helicopter. Mm-hmm. No good will come from that. And so, you know, lots of times if we see people on scene, they may have gotten to a motorcycle crash. They may or may not be intoxicated. They may be head injured. Uh, but if they're agitated and combative and uncooperative, I think that's the ideal use for ketamine in the pre-hospital setting. Mm-hmm. However, if you have a person possibly with a stroke, it's a little agitated. Um, or like a, another medical condition, if you think they may have an intracranial bleed, mm-hmm. so if you think they have like an acute neurologic emergency, and they're a little agitated, combative, and you get them ketamine, that really alters your ability to get a good clinical exam on that patient, which may may or may not make a difference in your ability to image them appropriately mm. and have them seen by neurosurgery, for instance. And so if they're in the K-hole, so to speak, mm-hmm. and you can't get a good exam on them, then it could be problematic. Okay. Um, also, also, people have varying experiences with ketamine. So if you drop them into the K-hole because you're trying to give them a little bit of pain or analgesia uh, support, next thing you know, they have a bad reaction, they have an emergence phenomena, they're partially dissociated, they're in a relatively traumatic setting, it's not in the patient's best interest to have them agitated and hallucinating when they're showing up into a chaotic emergency department. It's really not the ideal setting. Yeah, no, that's really good information. Um, And I'm trying to provide uh, EMS because this is kind of a fairly new drug in EMS, especially for ground services. I know that Flight's been carrying it and using it for quite some time. But even for ground services, it's um, fairly new for us, maybe a couple of years in. And so I know that there's probably a lot of questions about it, which is why I really wanted to uh, take our time and talk about ketamine and all the parts of it. So thank you for that. And I think any any information you have for EMS providers about it is really going to be beneficial to them feeling more confident using it. And some of the feedback that I got about it was actually from nurses in the ICU and using it. And even they feel a little bit more comfortable now with it just because of our previous conversation about it. Yeah. And there are some forward-thinking hospitals around the country that have actually incorporated ketamine for use in the emergency department for acute and chronic pain. And so I think that's that's a very, very important place where ketamine can be used safely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and right now, it's, we're doing it in the hospital here in Santa Fe without MD supervision. So it's not a procedural sedation. It's a low-dose infusion that help people. Often, they're out on chronic narcotics that are, that are not doing well. And so in the right setting, in a calm setting with some music playing, you can really make a difference and have people that have severe pain give them some relief. Ooh. Uh, yeah. And so it's um, a new modality. I think five years from now, every emergency department is going to have a protocol to use ketamine for acute and chronic pain. Ooh. So let's let's jump into that. Uh, you're kind of leading us into that topic anyway. Let's talk ketamine infusion. So um, – Tell us basically like what's a normal dose and how long is the infusion supposed to infuse? And so um, before we talk about this, so ketamine can be given by many different routes. It can be given orally. Mm -hmm. 
it can be given nasally. Um, there are some people that are advocating that be aerosolized and be used as a neb. Um, but by far, and it could be used intramuscularly, mm-hmm. I am, and that's, that's what most medics would do in the, you know, for rapid trank in the field. Right. And then there's the IV infusion. And uh, each of those modalities has its positives and negatives. Uh, but in terms of bioavailability, obviously the IV infusions are going to be most bioavailable mm-hmm. and less subject to variability in mucosal absorption right. or you know, either by mouth or nasal infusion. Right. And so, uh, so typically the infusions, uh, uh, depending on for what reason you're giving it. So in most cases, so for pain, the standard infusion is 40 minutes to an hour. The same thing for acute suicidality in the emergency setting. Uh, I actually run a ketamine clinic here in Santa Fe. We're one of the first clinics in the country. And we do a series of six infusions, typically each 40 minutes long Mm -hmm. for various psychiatric afflictions such as depression, anxiety, PTSD. Mm -hmm. We also use it for chronic pain, but that requires a longer infusion and a higher dose. Okay. So so briefly, so uh, there's a nasal ketamine spray that's now available and FDA approved for treatment-resistant depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really ready for prime time yet. It's very, very expensive. And I think the rollout has been less than successful from the pharmaceutical company. For most medics, they're going to be using an IM infusion, and that's going to be for rapid tranquilization. The last thing you want to do is try to pop an IV in an agitated patient. I think Provider safety is paramount, sure, and therefore, the IM ketamine is is really a godsend for highly agitated and violent patients. Mm-hmm. And so, and the dose typically is two to four milligrams per kilogram for that, and with often remarkable effect. Mm-hmm. And so, I used to work in in West Philadelphia in kind of a rough neighborhood, and. If you have agitated people pulling up in a police car, kicking out the back of the police windows, you would often roll down the window, give them a shot of IM ketamine, roll up the window, smoke a cigarette. (laughs) And by the time you're done smoking a cigarette, the patient will be comfortably sedated and ready for visiting the ER staff. (laughs) I like the way you worded that. That was perfect. (laughs) And, uh, and then there's oral, an oral route that we use for chronic pain often. Uh, and, uh, and then the most common way that I use ketamine is through an IV infusion. And it's typically from one half a milligram per kilogram to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. And that's over a 40 minute infusion. Mm-hmm. And the you know, smaller, do, I'm sorry, uh, just, just to clarify, the smaller dose of that is, is exactly what you prefaced this segment of our conversation is because we are, we know the bioavailability is going to be immediate versus if, it, if you give the oral route or even the IM route, we're going to lose some of that along the way. Absolutely. And so, uh, so I could titrate an infusion really to effect depending on what I'm trying to achieve. Right. And so if it's in the emergency setting, you know, I'm titrating it so I could do a painful procedure on someone. If it's for chronic pain, I'm titrating it to achieve 
the maximum dose without having extreme agitation or any sort of respiratory compromise. Mm -hmm. And I think the most important thing for, uh, for people to realize is ketamine is actually a mild respiratory stimulant. And so it's, uh, it's a drug that we use as a last-ditch effort in, let's say, status asthmaticus. Mm-hmm. So if I want to prevent putting someone on a ventilator, the last medication I'm going to give them besides all my cocktail of IV fluids and steroids and magnesium is going to be ketamine because it's a potent bronchodilator. And so sometimes you can actually prevent intubating someone using ketamine. uh, Or you can use ketamine as an induction aid in case you fail and you have to intubate them. Right. But but the dose that you use, ketamine is a respiratory stimulant, but actually can cause transient apnea if pushed too quickly. Right. And so that's, that's what I think the people in the EMS community need to respect. If you are going to be using IV ketamine, you have to have a very healthy respect about the, the rate at which you push the IV infusion. Mm-hmm. So if you give someone a bolus of ketamine, you could cause them to be apneic, which is a bad thing. Right, right. And we also talked a little bit in, a, in the part one episode of this is um, about the blood pressure effects that it can cause the, the hypertension, which is our worry, correct? Uh, it's one of the concerns, yeah. So uh, ketamine is a is a stimulant and uh, can cause dramatic increases in blood pressure and heart rate as well. And so it's useful in the setting of trauma, for instance. It used to be contraindicated, uh, but now it's our go-to medication in the trauma day if someone is marginally hypotensive. Mm. then we get a little bit of a bump in the blood pressure Mm. from its its stimulation effects. Having said that, if you have a patient in congestive heart failure, you probably don't want to give them ketamine because it's going to increase their afterload, increase myocardial oxygen demand, and perhaps precipitate cardiogenic shock or an ischemic event. Right. So we don't want to give it to a sick heart. (laughs) To make a sick heart have to work harder, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Cool. I, I love the, the brief on this. Let's get into, tell me about your um, clinic and what you guys do there and the type of patient population you're serving. Well, we started a clinic approximately four years ago, one of the first clinics in the country. And uh, so ketamine has this long history of being used as an anesthetic. And uh, about 15 years ago, uh, some clinicians realized that as you were giving ketamine for reasons other than depression, people's depression would lift. Mm-hmm. So if you went in for a gallbladder procedure and you had a history of depression, sometimes you'd come out of the procedure and your depression or suicidal ideation was no longer there. So some talented clinicians, uh, primarily at Yale and New Haven, Connecticut, started doing some clinical trials in 2000. And 20 years later, ketamine is the darling of the psychiatry world Mm. for treating patients that have treatment-resistant depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, and chronic pain. And so it's, it's really revolutionizing the treatment of mental health in America. 
I think right now we're a little slow in the uptake uh, nationally, but you'll be seeing ketamine clinics springing up all over the place. The, the fear is that people that are not adequately trained are going to start using it for reasons that are unclear. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see some of that. But we see patients uh, in our clinic, clients in our clinic every day. And um, people's response to ketamine infusions is nothing short of remarkable. I could give you anecdote after anecdote of people who have suffered for decades. And all of a sudden, it's like having the fog lift. Or some people describe it as a, a rebooting of the brain. Uh-huh. And it's nothing short of remarkable. It doesn't work for everyone, but our clinical experience and national experience suggests that up to 80% of all patients can expect significant relief from depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Uh-huh. Um, go ahead. Did, was there something else you were going to say? Did I cut you off? No, it's... Uh, we can't predict who's going to respond, but when you do respond, it's nothing short of dramatic and remarkable for many, many people. Do you have like, um, like, is there a particular story or a particular patient that sticks out in your mind where you're just like, wow, this, like, was there an event or a patient that really just sold you on this where you were just like, wow, like I'm, I'm a hundred percent believer in this now and I fully support it or what made you jump on board with this as a treatment? I'll tell you, one of, one of my favorite clients I've ever treated uh, is a gentleman that used to be a freaking flyer in the emergency department here in Santa Fe. And this gentleman had a lot of medical issues. He had cancer and had a lot of chronic pain associated with his procedures mm. and had a colostomy and had a lot of fear and anxiety around that. Mm-hmm. And so I would see him literally three times a month in the emergency department. And at one point, I looked at his daughter and I said, do you, think, do you think your dad's depressed? And she's like, absolutely. And uh, this guy is a really good looking guy. He's in his late 60s, early 70s and pretty much was housebound because of his pain and his anxiety. And he had a lot of vague presentations to the emergency department, vertigo, nausea. And, uh, and I actually suggested and gave him a ketamine treatment in the emergency department. I gave him a 40-minute infusion. Mm-hmm. He followed up in our clinic uh, later that week. And, uh, and the last time, he, that was the last time he actually has visited the emergency department in the past three years. Wow. Uh, and he, last winter, he, you know, this is a gentleman who barely left the house. He showed up at my, at my home with a truckload of firewood that he cut himself and his brothers. And, and he's resumed his life. He's fishing. He Pain no longer bothers him. He comes in for a periodic booster every three or four months. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's active and vibrant and, and is no longer a dependent on his family. And he's an engaged member of the community once again. There's a, a patient that you treated that I know very well, that you obviously know very well too since you treated him, um, who, and this is the most familiar with um, the, a story that I have of somebody who's received treatments from you in your clinic um, who, uh, whose wife died. And um, he was really depressed from that, obviously, a wife of, I don't know how long, 40 years, 50 years passed away and and who had some depression that he just could not 
shake after a year of grieving. And so um, he did go see you and had those treatments. And his testimony to me is that his life dramatically improved. Like he wasn't even able to get out of bed, do any of his daily living activities just because he was so incredibly depressed. And then he started getting treatments from you and his whole life changed. And he was back to his normal self of being active and and well, as active as he was before the depression anyway. Uh, but he was like in better spirits, had a better attitude. His His life just improved dramatically from those treatments that he had from you. And uh, as of last week, uh, he had found a new life partner and got married. Wow. Yay for him. Congratulations. That's awesome. That's super awesome. Uh, yeah. And so it's, it's really story after, you know, I'm seeing, especially in the age of COVID, we see a lot of younger people, I think, just to have a different level of stress from the social isolation. And so in the past three to four months, I've seen a lot of young people in their late teens, early teens, and early 20s that have really been devastated through COVID, many of whom have been very depressed and acutely suicidal. And, uh, and they're all doing so well in the last several months. It's, uh, it's really uh, heartwarming to see such a dramatic response. And people that have really failed many, many medications and other modalities. Mm-hmm. I really think in the next five years, that ketamine, as opposed to being a, la- a treatment of last resort, will become first-line therapy for people with depression, anxiety, and PTSD. People experience so much loss when they try to go on different medications, and the, many people have been unsuccessful for years with antidepressants. They actually, the data suggests that at least 50% of people do not respond to antidepressants. And five years from now, as opposed to coming to me in the clinic, after you've tried everything, you'll be sent to me as a first-line treatment. Uh, And that way you can avoid possibly getting on long-term antidepressant medications. um, Does someone have, is that a qualifier that they have to have tried traditional methods before they go to ketamine? Or is that not a qualifier? Can they, and and the, the other question I have too is that, does ketamine have a different effect if someone has been on, let's say, something like Zoloft or something like that um, for for 30 years? Does ketamine have a different effect? Because we are, though, all of those medications are changing the brain chemistry, right? So is there, is there like, do you find that ketamine is more effective for people if they stop for X amount of time of their antidepressants or if they stay on them, there's really no difference? Sure. Uh, well, there are a few issues there. So I am not a mental health professional. And so if someone refers a patient to me, a therapist, a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist, uh, I'm willing to see them and, and evaluate them. Uh, so they don't necessarily have to have failed two or more SSRIs or antidepressant treatments. Uh, as long as they're a mental health professional or a physician thinks that's the right move for them. Gotcha. And so that's kind of above my pay grade to make that decision or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, secondly, it, we don't believe that the SSRIs or mood stabilizers uh, have much interaction with ketamine, with the exception of Lamictal, which actually is a antidepressant slash mood stabilizer, which 
actually antagonizes ketamine. Mm-hmm. So two contraindications that we have for using ketamine are people that are on high-dose lamictal or people who are on high-dose benzodiazepines like Ativan, Valium, Xanax, because we think that the latter class of drugs interferes with the stickiness of the treatment. So we may get a robust response, but it's not going to be much duration. Gotcha. So, so, uh, like, what is the duration of one treatment without benzos, like someone who's on benzos chronically? Uh, Well, I would say probably uh, 15 to 20% of people have a, a noticeable response from just one ketamine treatment. The real protocol that's developed by the National Institute of Mental Health is a six-session treatment regimen. So typically, clients will come in for a series of ketamine infusions spaced a couple of weeks apart. So typically, three treatment sessions for the first week, possibly two treatment sessions in the second week, then maybe another treatment session once a week for several consecutive weeks. A lot depends on people's financial situation, on their scheduling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in general, the goal is to get enough ketamine in a, in someone to kind of get a, an important response. And the response is really a decrease in their depression score about 50% or more. Mm. And then once we achieve that, then we try to minimize the number of treatments to optimize the duration of the effect. I see. And uh, we most we usually see people that respond by the third or fourth treatment, and uh, and then we try to space out the remaining treatments. We think that's the most effective way to proceed. Right. So so just to kind of sum it up, uh, just so that I'm I understand what you're saying is like the first several treatments you are basically like loading doses or maybe like not a bolus, but for lack of better terms, uh, because you're trying to get that patient up to a therapeutic index. And then once they reach the therapeutic effect, you're basically just maintaining it with those subsequent infusions. Yeah. And the goal is to really optimize someone's mental health. And, and uh, if they're not optimized, then we may decide to do some additional treatments. Having said that, about 20% of people don't respond for reasons we don't really understand. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, don't, we don't really have much of an ability to identify who will respond and who won't respond. So like anything in medicine, there are no guarantees. Right. And it's a practice, right? That's why we call it practicing medicine. Um, right. And everybody's right. different. Right. So there is no way you could guarantee. I don't think anyone could just guarantee something for every single person because everybody's chemistry is different. Yeah. But I could tell you that the response there's there hasn't been a medication uh, in psychiatry that's been this revolutionary in the past 30 years. Nor effective. And, right. Uh, nor effective. And uh, it's nothing short of dramatic. Every day in my clinic, I have someone that says, Dr. Rosen, this has transformed my life in ways I can't even tell you. Wow. Wow. That's, yeah. that's awesome. I think like those stories, I'd be interested to hear from, from your patients who want to share their story of what impact this has had on their life. So if you know anybody yeah. who wants to share with me and our listeners, uh, let me know. I think people yeah, would really just, be interested yeah. in it. Mm-hmm. Just yesterday, I saw a lovely, lovely woman who's battled with depression and anxiety for 30 years and it led to her marriage falling apart and estrangement from her children mm. and she has discovered 
the person she used to be is what she told me yesterday. Aww. And she, yeah, so really, really lovely person. What does that do for you? Like, as a not only as a physician, but as a as a doctor. I mean, well, not, that's the same thing, right? Not only as a doctor and uh, slash physician, uh, as a human. Like, what is that? What impact does that do for you? You know, as you know, uh, we've worked closely in the emergency setting. Sometimes uh, it's not exactly the uh, the place to get a a pat on the back, right? Mostly our our patients just screaming at us and cursing at us and Mm -hmm. spitting at us and what have you. And, uh, but this is a whole different construct. I mean, you don't have a win that often in the emergency setting, right? You may save a couple of people, make a brilliant diagnosis. Uh, but you're seeing people at one point in time when they're usually at their worst. Uh, and so this, this practice has enabled me to see people over a course of several weeks or several months or even several years. And I see people, uh, just transform their lives and in ways that it kind of makes you feel good at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would think that would just have to, I don't know. Um, if I got that kind of feedback consistently from this treatment, that's really impacted people like significantly positively. Um, I think that it would just really cause me to be more motivated to want to help more people too. Like this is proven and this is, I'm actually having a positive impact on my community. I want to do more of this and, and really help my community out significantly. Yeah. It's interesting. We actually had one client at our clinic that, uh, that was kind enough to make a, a generous grant to our clinic so we can help offset the cost for, certain clients who don't have the ability to pay for the cost of treatment. And that's been kind of exciting that we could, we have a little bit of wiggle room in terms of cost. Can we, and it's really because it's, huh? no, no, go ahead. Yeah. And so it's just remarkable. I think we're one of the few clinics uh, that set up a nonprofit to help uh, assist people that can't afford the full cost of treatment. I was just going to ask you if we could talk about costs a little bit, because I'm sure there are people listening that are like, Wow, they, they either they think maybe this treatment can help them or they know somebody this can help. So, and probably most people are going to ask about costs. So, um, can we talk about costs for a minute? Like, what does it generally cost? Does insurance cover it? If, they, if insurance does cover it, what hoops does one generally have to jump through to get insurance to pay for it? And if they don't, and this is an out-of-pocket expense, um, what, what kind of um, help is out there for people who may not be able to afford that out-of-pocket expense? Uh, well, the, the simple answer is that insurance companies do not cover the cost of IV ketamine infusions. Okay. And, and so it, all costs would be out-of-pocket costs. Mm-hmm. The one exception is the pharmaceutical company that just engineered a ketamine molecule is marketing, it, marketing this molecule and this drug called S-ketamine, E-S-ketamine, which is administered in an office setting. It's a nasal spray. So in some insurance companies will cover that, but it's wicked expensive. And I think you have to jump through lots of hoops to even find a practitioner that's willing to do that. Because those of us that are serious ketamine practitioners don't think that's the best modality. We don't think a nasal spray is appropriate. It's giving the wrong dose in the wrong route mm-hmm. and uh and they tend to engineer out the psychoactive effects which most people in the psychiatry community 
think are some of the most important aspects of the ketamine experience. And so uh, aside from the S-ketamine that some insurance companies will pay for, the all other IV ketamine treatments are not covered by insurance. The average treatment cost typically is around $3,000 for a ketamine series. Right. And it sounds, which really comes out to about $500 per treatment. Uh, it sounds like a lot of money, uh, but people are usually not used to paying for their healthcare costs. Right. If you consider, you know, an IV infusion over the course of, you know, a session is typically an hour and a half to two hours. Uh, the physician time, time for a tech, office space, malpractice insurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, equipment. Um, it doesn't come out to a, a lot of profit at the end of the day. Um, but at, at some point, I think there's going to be a change where insurance companies will say, you know something? It's a lot less expensive for me to pay for IV ketamine infusions than to have this patient with depression show up to the emergency department three times a month for 10 years mm -hmm. if you could take care of the depression and avoid all sorts of treatment costs. Right. And, and so I did, we did a brief calculation with this one client that I alluded to earlier, the gentleman that came, they used to come three times a, a month to the emergency setting. Mm -hmm. And we estimated that his insurance company saved between multiple medical visits and ER visits close to a million dollars in year history. Wow. Because uh, he was re he was using so many medical services and had so many hospitalizations. Uh, and really, it was driven by his depression and anxiety. Yeah. And, and as you're talking, I'm also thinking not just him individually, right? But I'm also thinking about the system as a whole. So, so we all know in the, in the emergency departments that there's, there's a backlog because there's so many patients, the demand is so high to get into the ER because the healthcare system is broken. That's a whole different topic. But um, I'm just thinking about if you can have this one patient improve their quality of life from this $3,000 expense, which then saves a million dollars. So the dollar is, is, the, the financial aspect is really huge. But think about like that one patient is no longer taking up a bed in your ER. So now you have an open bed for a patient who's been waiting to be seen for a legit emergency. So this is like really beneficial, not just financially, but really for the system as a whole. Absolutely. And I think, and I think where, where the healthcare system can really save big money is in treating patients who are acutely suicidal in the emergency setting. That's going to be, I think, one of the new frontiers for psychiatry and emergency medicine. So if you think about it, and I guess we're diverging a little bit, you know, suicide is a pandemic, right? More mm -hmm. people die from suicide in the past four months than I have from COVID, for instance. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I forget what the statistics are. It's like a person every 60 seconds in the world suicides. It's some, it's some mind-bending statistic. And if we could minimize the whole psychiatric institutionalization of people that are feeling suicidal and offer them some hope through an IV ketamine infusion in the emergency setting, it really will transform how we approach mental health in America. 
So if you if you have a suicidal patient in the ER and you give them one dose of that, is then are they then because we talked about patients usually being most um, benefited by this treatment by having a series. So if they get one of those infusions in the ER it, because they have suicidal ideation, do they then need to follow up with the clinic within X amount of time in order to get the rest of those infusions? Or is this like a one-time, one-and-done? Or like, So they come into the ER, they're feeling suicidal, you give them the infusion, what happens after that? Well, if... Uh... You know, if they're, they have to be screened and if they're appropriate for a ketamine infusion, uh, up to 50% of people will have a cessation of their suicidal thoughts after a single infusion. Mm. And the cessation of those thoughts can last up to four to six weeks. Mm -hmm. And so this affords people the opportunity to then establish a plan with a mental health professional, see a therapist, see a psychiatrist, get on medications, adjust their medications. It gives them a window of time and could potentially avoid a pretty traumatic psychiatric hospitalization, uh, which I think is, is huge, especially for young people mm -hmm. that are often traumatized by their first encounter with the mental health system, which is often through the emergency setting. Right. And that whole process is, is again, another topic, but I'm really not a fan of that whole process of these patients coming in and then what ha what legally, I guess, has to happen it can really deter people from seeking help, I think. Um, Absolutely. You know, despite our best efforts and despite all sorts of algorithms about how we assess suicidal people, no one, no one has figured out who is going to suicide and when that's going to take place. Mm -hmm. And so there's no relationship between people that come into the emergency setting saying they want to harm themselves and whether they do or not. And we have no way to predict that, none whatsoever. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so if people have a robust response to a ketamine infusion in the emergency setting, that at least affords us the opportunity to set up support systems and follow up with those, those patients. Right. And if they do have a good response and we have the ability to see them and pursue treatment for depression or anxiety, uh, they often respond really, really well. Yeah. I want to go back to the financial piece real quick because I have a comment on that. Um, so $3,000 for uh, is a lot of money. I don't want to make it, I don't want to say what my, you know, let me preface my comment by saying I recognize that it is a tremendous amount of money. And for a lot of people, that's like, a whole like couple of months worth of income sometimes, right? That's that's a huge amount of money for people. But I look at it in the perspective of really like the cost of of treatment anyway, like the cost of getting any kind of healthcare treatment. Three thousand dollars doesn't seem that much. Like I think of when I had braces, I think I spent six thousand dollars on my braces uh, compared to three thousand dollars for my mental health. So if I had to choose between one of those things, I probably would choose the the $3,000 to improve my mental health and to improve the way I feel every single day versus straight teeth. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think if you put it in the context of other procedures, it really isn't that much. Yeah. having I just had a root canal and at the end of the day, they should have just taken the tooth. It would have been $4,000 less expensive. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then and then here's this treatment that you could pay. Can people make payments? Can they do like payment plan with you or what what help is out there for them? Because I'm thinking most people probably don't have three grand. Boom. 
but what what can they do if they're interested in getting this help? Well, I think there are some uh, some health credit cards out there, so they can actually get a credit card and and incur health expenses on those cards. Mm-hmm. Once again, we have some grant money at our clinic here in Santa Fe that's really designed for single moms, working moms, widows, uh, people that are struggling. Uh, and so I'm pleased that we have that ability to help offset the cost for certain people. Right. Is there an application for that or how does one look into that even further? Uh, and so typically after we do an intake and evaluation to make sure that the person is eligible for a ketamine series, uh-huh. then we have that conversation. We take a look at some financial records and then we have a, a conversation with the grantor anonymously, of course, uh, the person that's giving us uh, some funding gotcha. to see if they can qualify. Gotcha. Cool. Um, so all you listening, there's help out there. Don't be too, um, don't be too uh, discouraged by that amount that's out there. But I'm sure a lot of people are asking, well, what does this cost? What's the finances? So I'm glad that we talked about it. One more question when it comes to finances. Do you know if the VA pays for any of this for soldiers, like PTSD for um, our military personnel? Yeah, so I'm pleased to say that the VA administration has done some of the groundbreaking research, particularly related to ketamine and chronic pain. Mm. Now, lots of soldiers that have been wounded on the battlefield come back and have all sorts of phantom limb pain and all sorts of uh, pain-related issues and are often required to take high-dose opiates uh, to sustain life. And the VA has made a lot of uh, advances in, in treating veterans. I do believe the nasal ketamine is available through the VA. We talked about that briefly. Right. And that's a recent and that's a recent phenomenon. Okay. Cool. Um yeah, I think that if we do have any military personnel listening, if and if you are struggling, this should is definitely something you should look into. Maybe you haven't heard of it because it is pretty new and up up and coming. Um so I hope that any military people out there listening look into it if you feel this could benefit your life positively. Um I want to talk about the research, too. Uh, you mentioned research and the VA doing research. What other research is happening with this? Uh, I think there's not a day that goes by that you can't pick up a, a medical journal or even a newspaper and, uh, and come across ketamine being used for all sorts of different treatment options. Uh, I know this past week I saw an article that looked at ketamine as being an anti-inflammatory perhaps helping to modulate the, the body's response to COVID. Mm. So that's just this past week. Mm-hmm. Um, ketamine is being used on all sorts of different frontiers, as I alluded to, depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, addictions. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a fairly robust literature looking at ketamine for people with alcohol abuse and cocaine use and narcotic addictions. And uh, with some pretty dramatic results. And it's very, very exciting. Uh, there is a neuroscientist that I've had contact with uh, in New York at Columbia. And she's, she's theorizing that ketamine can be used to help vaccinate people against traumatic events. Uh, so soldiers going to war, uh, emergency medicine doctors going on to a shift people in the intensive care unit, 
that often struggle with PTSD and depression after an ICU stay, mm -hmm. refugees uh, going into a refugee camp. And so just briefly, this one neuroscientist did, in New York, she took a group of mice, exposed them to a stressor, like loud noise. And typically, mice will roam and explore. You expose them to a stressor, and they hide in the corner. Mm. So she took one group of mice, exposed them to a stressor, and saw the response. She took another group of mice, gave them ketamine, exposed them to the same stressor, and they didn't respond in the same way. Instead of hiding in a corner, they continued to explore. Mm. And her theory is that you can vaccinate mice, at least, against PTSD. Mm. As you're talking, and I'm so thinking of our profession. I'm thinking of EMS and fire personnel, even law enforcement, who are constantly subject to these, um, I'm ca I call them micro-traumas. Um, but we're constantly, our psyche is constantly exposed to these micro traumas. So I think that we would be a good <laughs> Petri dish, for example, or lack of better terms. Uh, like our profession would probably benefit from doing a study like this, I think. I, I agree 100%. And uh, yeah, there's nothing I'd like to see more than, than having much of our city and county EMS personnel get a ketamine experience and uh, see how that affects their ability to function on the job and outside of the job as well. Yeah, I think that it could, there could be a lot of, um, I think that it, like if, you, if you're trying to prove this P, uh, vaccination theory, right, for giving ketamine, I think that uh, EMS and fire are, are, and law enforcement are a good uh, subject matter or, or I guess, classification of people to try this out on, too, because, again, the consistent, continued microtraumas we're exposed to. Yeah, I could tell you recently uh, we've been involved in setting up a possible study looking at the use of ketamine for end-of-life anxiety. And so people that have uh, a terminal diagnosis are often anxious and fearful about, about dying. Yeah. And we've had several clients in our clinic that have had just a, a very spiritual and meaningful response to the ketamine. And, uh, and at the end of the day, they've often said, you know, I was so anxious and fearful and I'm comfortable with that. And, and I'm no longer afraid of dying. It's part of the life cycle. And that tends to be the people's general experience. Uh, and so we're looking to maybe study that at the local cancer center here in Santa Fe. Wow. That's, that's interesting as well. I really like this research that's being done. I think if, if we can do, do something, and you know, even like with EMS, we give ketamine. So I think you're going to have less of a hesitation if that's the, the population you choose to study or serve. Uh, we give it. And so a lot of people are more comfortable with it than the average layperson. I think. Yeah. And once again, it's really the set and the setting that really makes for a positive ketamine experience or not. Mm -hmm. So in a very controlled setting, not, not on the ambulance, but in a clinic setting where there are neutral tones and you're in a relatively isolated environment and uh, with minimal external stimuli, you can really have a deeply spiritual and positive mind-bending ketamine experience that can really transform your, your outlook on life. 
What is your hope for all of the research and everything that's happening right now around this and, and the infusions and what you personally have experienced in the patients you've treated? Like, what is your long-term hope with all of this? Well, I hope that insurance companies will embrace IV ketamine infusions. I think it will save them tens or hundreds of billions of dollars mm. in mental health hospitalizations and treatments. For those people in which ketamine infusions work, it works very, very well. And that's 75 to 80% of the people that we see and treat. So that's the first thing. If insurance companies would come around to reimbursing patients for IV ketamine, it would be transformative. Uh, secondly, I think the other shift is going to be as opposed to ketamine being a, a, last treat, a treatment of last resort, that's going to be the first line treatment. And I'm seeing currently a lot of young people and their parents don't want to put them on SSRIs or antidepressants uh, because there are so many negative side effects to these medications. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you could avoid a lifetime of medication by going for a series of treatments with ketamine uh, or periodic boosters, I think it would be transformative for many I agree. Um, so if you if you need a guinea pig, you can. I'm a volunteer. I have my hand raised. I'm first in line. <laughs> okay. I'll deal. elbow my way to the front of that line if I have to. <laughs> <laughs> so we're ending, um, getting to the end of our show. We're getting near the end, and I want to ask you a couple of questions. But before I do, I want to offer you a space to just add anything that maybe we didn't cover. Or any final thoughts you have on this? Um. And I think uh, mental health, especially among EMS and fire crews and law enforcement, is often a taboo subject. And uh, I just think it's important for people to, uh, to kind of destigmatize that. Um, everyone goes through periods of depression and anxiety. Uh, but when it starts to impair your ability to function, I think you really need to seek help. Mm -hmm. And you should do that sooner as opposed to later. It's mm -hmm. just healthier. It's kind of like what we do with our, our patients, right? If they have an pneumonia, we see them early, we can send them home. If they wait too long, then they're going to require a stay in the intensive care unit. The same thing with mental health. If you catch it early, treat it early and aggressively, then you come out on the other side intact. But if not, mental health can ruin people's existence, disrupt their families and their careers. And we just have to be really proactive and recognize the fact that this is that we're in high, we're in a high risk profession, especially in the age of COVID, and we should address those issues sooner as opposed to later. I agree. Here, here, I second that. Everything you said. Um, huh. Okay, so are you ready for our closing questions? I feel like this is like okay trivia time. Um, but are you ready? I have three questions. I ask every guest at the end of the show. Um, so are you ready for those? I'm ready. Okay. Number one. If you could host a public safety announcement and bring awareness to something, what would it be? Uh, well, since we're on the topic of ketamine for acute suicidality, it would be if someone, or someone you know or yourself are feeling suicidal, ketamine can decrease that suicidal thinking often in 50% of the cases within a couple of hours. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. You should avail yourself of this treatment option. Awesome. Number two, what is the one thing you would want younger people to know who are wanting to get into a career in medicine or emergency medicine? And, and younger people like high school kids or maybe 
people who just graduated that are thinking about becoming doctors or or getting into EMS, what kind of advice would you give to them? Uh, I think uh, you need to explore widely. And uh, if you, I've never met a doctor that has refused to have someone tag along or shadow them or, or see what they do. And I think it's, uh, it's part of the training of medicine that you train others. And so I think approach, approach a medic, approach a firefighter, approach an emergency medicine doctor, um, approach anyone in the profession, approach an ER tech, and we could always figure out a way to get you exposed. Right. Well, let me rephrase that. that I'm not sure. That might be the wrong verbiage. We a way to get you exposed. Is the right. <laughs> yeah. In this COVID era, that, that might be. <laughs> <laughs> we all know what you mean, though. We, we got you. Delete that part of the podcast. <laughs> and I also th- want to say that, like, to, to add to that, is law enforcement as well. So I, our law enforcement, and maybe pre-COVID, and because we're in COVID, this may not be available in fire and law enforcement, but... Um, if it's something you're interested in or, or something you want to be critical of, I think it's important to expose yourself to the reality of it um, and then decide for yourself, especially if it comes to something like being a doctor, because it is so the time it takes to achieve that goal as well as the money it takes. It should be something that you're pretty confident you want to do, I think. Is there one other question? One other question. Ready? Ready? I'm ready. In one word, describe your experience in healthcare. Hmm, one word, huh? One word. Um, I'm, I'm hesitating because that's the hard, that's a hard, hard question. Um, humbling. Mm. Humbling. How, how so? Medicine is a humbling profession. And so, you know, you wake up every day, you suit up, you try to do the right thing. And every day we make mistakes. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing this or how good you are or how smart you are. Uh, You make mistakes and you learn from those mistakes. And and so it's a humbling but worthwhile profession. Awesome. Great, great conversation today. I'm really grateful to you and appreciative of your time. Thank you for being with us and for sharing all your knowledge about this. I, my hope is, is that everyone listening is going to feel so much more confident with ketamine, but also be a little bit hopeful that the, this is the new up and coming treatment for mental health. So if you know someone's struggling or you're struggling, this could be an option to help you. So thank you for highlighting that and really illuminating that the hope with ketamine that it can bring to people. So thank you for that so much. Um, thank you, Sam. I appreciate you being here and I appreciate your time. As always, you're welcome anytime. I want to have more conversations with you. And I think people like what you have to say based on the feedback I've been given. Um, So you're welcome anytime, Dr. Rosen. And I can't wait to see you soon. Thank you, everybody who's listening. And um, we will talk to everybody soon and stay safe. 